Have you ever had an idea for a physical product that you just knew had the potential to change the world? Maybe it was something you dreamt up in your garage or a solution to a problem you encountered in your daily life. Whatever it was, you knew it was a winner. If only you can turn that idea into something. Well, you are not alone. Countless entrepreneurs and innovators have stood exactly where you stand, filled with passion and drive, but unsure of where to begin. And that's where the Builder Circle comes in. My name is Seda Evjeman, and I'm a mechanical engineer, hardware enthusiast, and hardware mentor. I've had the privilege of working with numerous hardware companies that are passionate about solving some of the biggest challenges in the world. And I will be your host as we explore the exciting and complex world of physical product development. All right, welcome to the Builder Circle. Today, I have the wonderful Christine Barnes with me, and we're going to really dive into some complex system development and all the intricacies that involve that. So Christine, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I'm so excited to have you. Thanks, Sarah. I'm so excited to be here too. Excellent. If you could give a little bit of background on yourself and what what ha- brought you into hardware and what you've done with it ever since. <laughs> sure. So I have had a very unique path into hardware. My background is actually civil structural. That's what my degrees are in. And I started out in engineering because I wanted to design roller coasters. I never actually got there. (laughs) Um, But that was what the purpose of going through and doing all sorts of different structural classes. I actually really liked structural engineering and found it fascinating. Um, And at the end of my master's degree, I started working in nuclear power. So I spent 10 years doing design and analysis for nuclear power plant components. I was a part of a a firm that did uh, engineering and services. So we didn't own or operate, um, but we would get into the plants. We would do uh, subsystems. And I did many years of technical analysis and finite element analysis on different components um, from the reactor and the pressurizers, um, mainly focusing on pressurized water. Um, vessel systems. When I got a little, I don't say tired of that, but I was looking for a change in my career and started looking around at different areas, different ways to go. And I was actually really scared that I had pigeonholed myself into the nuclear power because it's a very highly specialized industry. Yeah. Yeah. And I spent so many years working on working with really old codes because everything is, is, designed to these codes and the ASME codes from like the 70s and the 60s, depending on when the plant was. So I didn't have a lot of experience with the newer codes. Um, Fortunately, uh, when I was looking around and I actually uh, utilized the Society of Women Engineers Career Center, and I was able to get a connection to General Motors, they sent me an email and said, hey, come talk to us at this career fair at a SWE conference. And I was like, ah, I don't know if automotive is in my future. I'll talk with anybody. I went and talked to them at the career fair and was impressed with the their willingness to train people and had the opportunity to interview and took the jump to switch industries. And I've been uh, with GM for seven years now, and it's been uh, absolutely fantastic. And I've worked now uh, in, in hardware, in um, site closures and the different components within door systems. I've done uh, the exterior systems. So think bumpers, fascias, grills, all those exterior trim blingy parts that get put on the outside of the vehicles, like all the the really nice stuff that makes it look awesome. I've done upfront design development. I've done current product. And I most recently worked on the launch of our heavy duty trucks. 
been around for a few years and I've now had the opportunity to break into models-based systems engineering, which is way outside my comfort zone, but it's really interesting. And I love the group of people that I'm working with. So I've got that, but I've also had my second career with the Society of Women Engineers, where I've got to flex other different muscles, you would say, other different uh, skills in the financial area and strategic planning. Um, and I was so excited to be offered the opportunity to be on your podcast since you were on SWE's podcast, our diverse podcast that we interview different leaders through STEM communities and dig deeper into where they are and really focus on those DE&I topics. Really excited to be a part of this. Yes, absolutely. It's It was an absolute pleasure to be on the Diverse podcast. For th those who are listening, who are interested, definitely check it out. It, the topics are really relevant, very important. And you can see from Christine that leadership at SWE and the general community that surrounds it is excellent. I also, your background is absolutely fascinating. Starting from <laughs> nuclear and ending up in automotive, all incredibly complex, complex systems in their own in comparison to many other things. And it's really cool when I meet people who've done such drastic industry swaps. It makes me feel much better about myself because I've definitely done it myself as well. And it's stressful. It's, it's, it's new. You have to learn about all of the environmental conditions and the codes and Especially with automotive, there's the customer side of things and the market, which I'm sure was a drastic shift in engineering priorities and design and and also just like scaling for mass rather than working on one of a kind. Yeah. So when I was in the nuclear industry, the, the mass production, you would say, was being able to you know, utilize a report that you spent 500 hours on and utilize that same like format to do another 500 hour report for another plant. Because <laughs> oh everything was unique, one of a kind, as designed for individual plants. And now I go to a company that's here, you're going to design this one part, and we're going to make a million of them. So it's such a different switch in thinking when you go from that, we get one shot in the yeah. nuclear industry to do something versus we have so many different, I mean, we, we want to get it done right in the first time, but you have the opportunity to go back and make improvements. Yeah, um, yeah. It's a good point. It's a completely different problem to solve, not just from the application perspective, but even the constraints around it. I find it absolutely fascinating that you were able to make such a drastic shift like that. And that's why you're here. And that's why we're <laughs> going to talk about complex systems, because I actually work with a variety of startups where they, they the systems that they're developing are from consumer electronics, where it's like an IoT device or something that uh, has a pretty small enclosure, not a ton of uh, unique part counts. And it's very user and customer driven. Uh, but I also work with a lot of companies that are trying to really disrupt a lot of industries or uh, they're really trying to uh, make sustainable products that are more so on the industrial scale. So it's complex. And coming from startup background and trying to do industrial application complex systems is quite difficult because it's a lot of investment from the beginning and you can't prototype as easily. So I definitely want to pick your brain on how your approach has been and how we can potentially help hardware entrepreneurs who are building complex systems and how they can treat it so that they have effective ways to go about the problem. So uh, starting with that, so what, what do you feel like is the most um, efficient and effective way of creating requirements uh, for systems and subsystems when it comes to a very complex uh, product? 
Yeah. So this is what I'm really working on and focusing on right now within my models-based systems engineering group that I just joined. Requirements start at the top. You have to stop start at those really upper level requirements and then have a process or a system that allows them to flow down into those lower level components. And you can do this a number of ways. If you don't have a significant number of parts, you could just use Excel spreadsheets to track those different systems. But something systematic that you are like coding and breaking down and saying, okay, we have top level system and then break that down into ABC components. And then we're going to break those components down into smaller components. And those, like I said, those requirements flow down from the top. There are special systems and softwares that make it easier to link all of that together. But it could be easy as writing requirements down in specifications and Word documents. The key thing is what you want to avoid doing is letting people work outside of that system or process for tracking requirements, because that's where you get into trouble if you start to get things outside of that system mm -hmm. where everything's connected and people are talking to each other. And that's where you start to miss things. Mm -hmm. So the starting that process, and it's awesome when you can start small and, and build up, because if you do it right at the beginning, it makes your life so much easier in the downstream as you get more complex, as you get more subsystems, as you get more variation in your, in your, in your different components. Definitely. I actually had the experience where a very complex system was being developed and because it was super early stages, there were still a lot of question marks on even if certain systems were to exist. Mm -hmm. And the requirements were very, for lack of a better term, swagged. And there wasn't a centralized way to track them, really. It was there was a lot of system leads and they were tracking their own requirements. But what ended up happening was they would bleed into each other's areas and they'd be mm -hmm. like, this is the most important system. So if this doesn't work, the entire system doesn't work and mm -hmm. you can say that about every single one and mm -hmm. there was this I think uh, what you said is also true and I'd love to get your opinion on this but when it comes to system prioritization everyone specifically if you are the lead of a system you're going to say that your system is the most important whereas there potentially is a hierarchy or not what do you think do you feel like there is a system hierarchy so definitely a hierarchy from components flowing into one another and building like different systems but as you look across systems, that interface and that talking to each other is absolutely critical. And as you get bigger and bigger, it might not seem like a big deal when you're a startup and you've got like a few people in a room, but everybody's taking this broad perspective over the entire product. But as you get bigger, as you grow, you run the risk of, of siloing and mm -hmm. getting that really deep look at just your area and then missing how you understanding how you affect other components. Mm -hmm. But if you're looking across systems, you have some that might be, we call them like safety critical systems, ones that are, are, are critical for sa safety and those we track specially and they get extra focus. But all components, all systems within your product, they have value, they have a function that's going to help the user. So I don't see like a hierarchy in one system rating above another, mm -hmm. but that connection, that interface between everybody, each of the, those different systems is so critical and maintaining those connections. That's a good point because in a product or even an in industrial complex system, there's going to be multiple metrics that you care about. There's going to be performance. There's going to be safety. There's going to be some level of reliability. And it's just there's too much that you are putting onto it that creating a hierarchy would potentially be a waste of time. But 
maybe the hierarchy can only come if you have a very small team and you have this core technology that you're really trying to develop and de-risk. And maybe that's a priority, but mm -hmm. it doesn't mean that when you come into integration and you're trying to build this thing, that's the only thing that you focus on. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Because you, as you start to get these more complex systems, sometimes the ties between them and what links them and what affects other things aren't readily seen. You don't understand that this one thing is going to affect another thing and it might, it's, oh, this just like turn, turns a knob on the dashboard. But maybe that connects to another critical system that could potentially cause a bad failure. So that that integration is key. And that's where like models-based systems engineering and just creating like even just a visual map of your system and how you link everything that can really help you identify those key critical areas and inter interfaces. I couldn't agree more. And I think, I even think that level of systems thinking would help any type of program to be able mm -hmm. to determine milestones. System-based milestones and tasking, I think is one of the best things that a startup specifically should do because oftentimes I always use this analogy of in a startup, specifically when they're building a complex system, there's all of these insurmountable tasks that kind of look like a mountain. And mm -hmm. because no one has organized it, it feels like some people sometimes don't have work to do or there's just so much work to do that you don't even know where to start. So when yes. you systematize it, it like almost makes it four little mountains instead of one big one. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. The When I was going through my design for Six Sigma training, we call it, we don't want to boil the ocean. Exactly. <laughs> we want to take this little piece of it and we work on that little piece and break it down into these sizable chunks that you can actually make meaningful impact on. Because it, trying to boil the ocean, you're going to waste so much energy trying yeah. to work on it at this big level and breaking it down and helping find those connection points is where that most impact can come. Yes, I completely agree. So when when thinking through, specifically if you are, say, I think automotive is a great example for this because there are automotive um, startups out there where, mm -hmm. where they, they don't have a hugely built infrastructure and they're trying to uh, um, make a new uh, electric vehicle, for example. And there will potentially be different models that they're working on and different combinations and components that will exist. Do you, so do you have any thoughts on, I'm sure you have thoughts on, what are your <laughs> thoughts on, what are your thoughts on systematically tracking combinations and components? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it comes down to, again, that system map, because then if you have that map of the entire system, you can identify where you're going to introduce those variation points. And then see where you're going to affect downstream. Because too often when you're making changes to a big system, you don't understand how you affect those downstream users of that system, be it other hardware components that integrate into it, electrical components, software, all those things that have to work together to make the system work. Um, if you, you can, if you don't have a huge bomb list, you can do this just like with Excel spreadsheets or you could create. Um, databases through a software to help you visualize that, but that identification of variation and being very aware of, again, how you're affecting those downstream users. Because when I was working in, say, bumper systems, we say, okay, we need to make a change in this part. Well, if we make a change in that part, then that affects 
where this electrical wire is connected. And then we have to go talk to the electrical team and they can't do it because it violates some of their best practices. And we didn't realize how much that would, you know, tear up their design. And then we just get stuck in this loop. Tracking all those different combinations really helps with change management. And not only just the hardware components, but also think about it from a production standpoint. If you introduce variation, if you introduce different trim levels, do you have space for all these different parts? How are you going to control this on the line as parts are going down a manufacturing line? Are your workers going to be able to grab, know which parts to grab? Do you have those processes in place to do that and to make sure that the right parts go on the right ones and the right trim level as it's going down the line? And so all of those things get connected when you start to introduce those variation and combination um, sets. Yes. So what I'm understanding is when you are building almost like a system map or a system flow flow down, it's important to understand almost system level dependencies and the effect of decisions where it's I actually never thought about it that way of just like where you can introduce variety because mm-hmm. I've worked personally mostly on one off and the only variety I've worked on was like bracelets and it was just it wasn't the electronics that would change it would just be the top and even that itself was creating an entire skew numbering system so that you're because there's also the inventory part of things yes. which I'm sure is a hairy mess. <laughs> 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 which maybe we'll get into if we have time, but that that's a really interesting perspective. Is there any, so you, you mentioned trim as an example. I think that's, that's excellent. Have there ever been instances or could you talk to any examples of when in the design cycle, it makes most sense to introduce the potential for variety? Is it later on or is it as early as you can get? As early as you can. The later the change, the more impacts you're going to see, the more redesign you're going to see. So in a lot of times people say, oh, we just want like this extra part. Okay. And it depends on how close you are to your product launch too. Do you have enough time? Are you talking about tooling? Are you talking about a brand new process or, or procedure? If you want to introduce a new part to, that goes on something, how, again, how are you going to control that risk of, we say, we'll just use the same interface. If you're using the same interface, again, that you have that now, how do you like poke a yoke or making sure the right part gets on the right one? You, you can use the same interface, but again, it's going to change. It changes so much more and late changes are way more costly than yeah. those upfront design ones. If you can, because it upfront If you're still working, if you haven't even cut tools yet, you haven't designed your line yet, you haven't figured out how everything's going to be manufactured, you have the opportunity to build in those variations and design out risk Mm -hmm. and making sure that you are thinking about how things are put together and how you can make sure that only the variation and combinations go together that you want. So upfront. Absolutely upfront. That that does make sense. I guess one thing that makes me think of is I also see a lot of startups and I'm, I, I keep bringing it back to startups because mm-hmm. I feel like there's these common pitfalls that I see founders falling into where I completely agree that if there's going to be a, a variation, it should be introduced early so that the longstanding effects of the change change management are not as costly, not as overhead mm-hmm. and do, do, doesn't disrupt your launch or even production line. But 
I feel like there's this, I, I would be curious to uh, know what your thoughts are on balancing that with mm-hmm. focus on the product that's being delivered. Because I feel like a lot of founders fall into this pitfall where there's so many versions of their product that could exist in the market that are mm-hmm. exciting and people are showing excitement. So they're like, oh, okay, great. Like we'll have the five person team work on four different products at the same time. And we'll try to develop suppliers for all of those four products. Whereas they're still very early stage. They still haven't launched anything out there. How do you balance uh, the introduction mm-hmm. of variety with focus. Yeah. If you haven't even launched a product out there, you haven't even proven out that you can do something, one thing good, let alone <laughs> add all these multiple different variants in it. If if you're a startup, you got brand new product, you're thinking about all these different what ifs, because that's the that's fun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thinking about all these what ifs, oh, we could do this, we could do this, we could do this. That is where you need your project management team, your product development team to say, okay, no, we need to focus on getting one thing out and prove out how this product and process works. And then it will be easier once we've created this foundation to go in and say, okay, now where can we add in the variation? Where can we add in these extra trim levels or whatever else? But you think about the automotive industry at its very beginnings, you could have any color car you wanted as long as it was black. Right. <laughs> one thing, one one style, one trim level, prove it out and then start to go. You can start to do some offshoot development work, but making sure that the core team really is focused on that initial product and, and getting that done. That would be my thought on that. Okay, that that definitely clarifies it for for me as well. And I agree with you on that. But it might be just, I really liked your perspective of introducing it on the system level. What it could be as simple as is like an asterisk next Mm -hmm. to a system being like, this is something we're going to revisit after we've launched our first product because we think that there is going to be a variety on this thing. So at that level, you could potentially have a conversation with your team of how much time would we would we have to spend to potentially make this a little modular so that we don't screw ourselves over in two years when we've launched this, but we really want to have a little bit of a variety. What is the yeah. trade-off there? I feel like that is a great introduction of variety from the early stages, but not investing too much or like at <laughs> least having a point where you're thinking of that trade-off. It feels like it, it's a really good kind of happy medium of remaining in focus, but also being able to have a little bit of awareness of where the product might go in the future. And I think, yeah, 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 no, absolutely. And having that mindset that we are designing for potential and possibility will help you with when you go through that, looking at how the, the products get put together and it will help you stay out of that realm. We're going to make this like just a one-time thing. And this, these parts fit precisely and exactly together and we can't do anything else, any other combination ever. So that's def- definitely having that foresight and that strategy of saying, okay, we're going to make these these parts be interchangeable mm-hmm. and have that asterisk there. And so that can be a definite strategy of going through your system tree and saying, okay, here's where we want to put in variation points for the future. I love that. I absolutely love that. And when looking, we talked a little bit about how with complex systems, there's a lot of different subsystems and a lot of different variations of components within those subsystems and the dependencies of set systems is really important. 
Mm-hmm. And I think what that brings up is to be able to assess risk, you really need to understand what failure modes um, yes. e- exist in <laughs> systems, products, system interfaces. So what are your thoughts on, first of all, when it's a super complex system and you have a lot of subsystems, is it best to do failure mode effects analysis Nails- mm-hmm. or go with fault trees or a combination of both? Because I feel like they, they attack the problem from different angles. And with complex, yeah. it feels like analysis paralysis could happen with FMEA. But I'm it, curious to know your thoughts. It, it can, but I'll say so being at in automotive and working at GM, we have super, super huge bomb lists, right? Mm-hmm. Every part I've worked on, we've done DFEMAs or design for failure modes effects analyses. And so we do that up front while we're doing the design process. When I see a fault tree, it's like you're you're talking about one single failure mode, right? Yes. Like exactly. this is our top failure mode. FEMAs or DFEMAs, it's like almost like that fault tree is then tipped on its side because yeah. you've got you're you're like going through all these different failure modes and you're trying to figure out how um you're breaking down each one of those and looking through that risk analysis. But doing those design, doing those in the design phase. And understanding different failure modes from, they, they say it's like a bottom up, but you're building up this, this complex system of all these different failures. And this is, again, where you're going to want to uh, look at your systems and how each of these different systems are connected to each other. But when you're doing up front, it's all, it's this managing risk. And all, I've heard this and I love this analogy of think about it as a railroad crossing. So very base level you could have tracks out there. Or there's no warning, just tracks. You're just going to rely on people to pay attention. So that's accepting a certain amount of risk. Hmm. Then you can have warning signals. You're alerting them to some possible danger. And so you could think about that as like a pick light on your manufacturing line, telling somebody, oh, you got to pay attention. This is the one that you got to pick. Hmm. Then you can have warning signals with the gates that cross in front of it. And you're saying, okay, no, you can't drive across this. And maybe that's, if you look at it in like a process um, along your manufacturing line, that's maybe a one uh, bin opens up and you say, okay, now the worker has to pick this one. And that's how you manage that risk. If you've got multiple parts going on at the same station, the most comprehensive way to mitigate is to design your way out of risk. And so in our track situation, let's build a bridge over it. You're removing any possibility of that collision. And so as you're going through all the DFEMAs that I've done, we, at the end, we have this list of things and risks that we need to make sure we design our way out of. So could the part be put on wrong? Could the part be put on a different trim? And so all those things that you're made aware of, and you can integrate that into your design process as you go forward. And I know like analysis paralysis come up, but I, once you get through that, it gives you a very clear list of where you need to focus attention on your design. Wow. I really like that analogy. I feel like I'm going to take that with me. Uh, <laughs> I, I hadn't heard about it explained in that way. And I really appreciate it. How do you assess that in a sense that when you say, let's say one of the failure modes is the part being put on wrong. Mm-hmm. So you design it so that it, say, doesn't have a hole on the other side or doesn't click it, click in because mm-hmm. it, it's designed that way. But because you did that, now you have to get a new injection mold. So yeah. I'm making it up. Yeah. I'm making up a scenario. In in that case, how how do you assess to go and actually choose to build that bridge? Yeah. 
So, so that comes down to, as you go through your, your DFEMA, your risk assessment. So as you go through all of your different numbers that you assign, what's the risk of this? What's the severity of it? And so that's where you get your balance of how severe is this? There's a huge difference between I put something wrong on our airbag system versus I put an emblem on upside down. Yeah. It's one's like a customer dissatisfier. One is like that huge safety risk. And so that the math formula that you walk through helps you identify those critical areas where you say, no, this is key. We're going to do everything we can to, we must design our way out of this. We cannot let this happen versus it, we'll figure it out, but we're not going to go spend extra money on a tool or spend, try to um, introduce new variation because we need new sheet metal panels for different parts to plug into. So that part of the DFA may is really powerful um, doing that risk assessment across it. Yeah, I feel like, uh, yeah, the risk assessment and then almost putting a dollar value on it, it seems in, in a way. And in I, I feel like that's something either putting a dollar value on it or having intuition enough to say this is a risk worth taking. And mm -hmm. it's it's just we're going to see how it shakes out. Yeah. Um, and in some ways, some some products, you might be able to do that. Other products, if you have any safety concerns, that's where you put like the red flashes on it and say, nope, this is safety critical. There is no compromise here. Yeah. Yeah. It really shows how even think. So I feel like a lot of people see sometimes how DFMEAs or FMEAs can be described or felt like is just like it's over documentation it's doing all of it's sometimes it, it takes a very long time so it it <laughs> yes it can be something hours that, uh, and hours be, yeah, hours and it's also the assessment of severity like likelihood and severity or impact however people like to use it for those who are listening that don't know uh, what that means, basically, when you're assessing risk, you uh, look at what the uh, severity or impact is, essentially. If that risk were to occur, what would it destroy or what would it do in a negative way? And then the likelihood is how likely it is to happen. So those are usually the, the two main pillars of how you assess risk. And assigning them numbers or assigning them, it's such a funny kind of soft chart, which I think it hurts it pains engineers <laughs> often because it's like 50% chance, eh, like 75% chance. You don't really know. And it's always a conversation and you put in a lot of people's opinion about it. If someone's seen it more, you trust them more. It is really a soft process in its own mm -hmm. way. So it, it it's definitely difficult. However, I do really think that it is so valuable because I think it centers design teams mm -hmm. around the problem. And then also where each individual is coming from. So it, it, it centers the team in itself. So the exercise not only helps the product be the product launch in a less risky fashion, but I, I think it also centers the team, which I think is yeah. important for technical culture. Yeah. And, and a couple of thoughts on that. So going through many of these, you have you need somebody strong when you're leading it to say, no, we, we can't go halvesies on any of this. They're like, right. maybe it's not quite a 50, maybe it's not good. Let's give it like a 65. You're like, no, these, you have to go one way or the other. And you really need to be very strict about doing that. And because we engineers, we love trying to finagle and find that, thread yeah, that needle. Yeah. <laughs> and the other thing that I, that you said in there that made me start thinking is, 
making sure that when you're in these teams and discussions that everybody gets heard and you're not simply relying on those quote unquote more experienced experts yeah. because you if you have a diverse team people are going to be bringing in different perspectives that maybe somebody even who's been working on the product for a much longer period of time they just have never thought about it in a different yeah. way and so bringing in those perspectives and making sure you're not just relying on those those experts to make all the decisions that is is so critical, especially during these upfront risk assessments, because everybody has different levels of risk and tolerance. And just having diverse teams look at it, it just makes it th the product that much better at the end. I completely agree. And I believe I said this on the diverse episode I was on, but keeping for those who are experienced and want to create more diverse environments, which you should want to do that because it will only make the product you're working on better and you might come across really novel ideas that you had never thought about or come across, which being the warriors of that is important when you have that much experience. But looking out for people who haven't spoken mm -hmm. and giving them the stage or asking them what their thoughts are is such an important, th this is definitely like a, a tangent, but super important. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that is just because it, it's, it, it comes from a point of diversity in many ways. And it's also there's a lot of introverted folk that don't feel comfortable speaking up. And it's just it's a lot of different opinions that need to be heard. And some people just don't feel comfortable speaking up. So being able. Yeah. To and if you find yourself the leader of these groups, making sure you're watching that group dynamic for people who might be dominating the conversation or talking over other people. I I've worked with some fantastic people and one of, of my favorite managers, she did such a great she would call it out every time. And you're like, you need to let her talk. You need to let her speak. You talked over her. And I loved it. I love being in meetings with her because she really had a knack for getting everybody to participate and, and making sure that nobody dominated or talked over anybody and, and would call people out on it on the spot. Mm -hmm. And as a result, as more people talk, you have more opinions and more, if you want to think about it in purely engineering terms, <clears throat> you have more data points that get folded into your system design. So that's just all the better. I guess going into now shifting gears into risk management and yeah. the quickest way to risk retirement. I We were just talking before this episode of just risk retirement as a saying, just risk mitigation. But yeah, I feel like one of the most important things for most startups is to be able to get their uh, product or complex system out there, which is mm -hmm. even harder when you have so many systems. Do you have any thoughts on how systematically and quickly a startup can work through their risk mitigation? Yeah. So this goes back to their requirements and understanding your loads and your system, whatever you're trying to design for. So like in, in nuclear, when we talked about how critical this was, we get one shot to do one change <laughs> yeah. uh, in, in a system. So the risk management of that was incredibly high and so much so that we would spend 500 hours on one report for one finite element analysis to make sure it was right. But it and that was going through every single load case, every single possible combination of, of failures and, and looking for that key ones. So thinking about what are the most critical load cases on here? What are, if you've got fatigue in your part, if it's going to be used multiple times, you're going to be looking at those different um, things. So it just going through those and, and mapping them out and saying, okay, these are, how, how can we combine some of these combinations mm. and say, let's string some of these together um, and 
maybe reduce down the number of cases we have to run, but still making sure we capture those critical loads, those critical cases, um, whether it be a nuclear plant that's at a fall condition and all of a sudden your pressure has spiked from 2,500 PSI to 3,500 PSI or your, your temperature fluctuates or whether that be crash condition, if you're looking at an automotive or just every regular day use of somebody opening and closing a door, you know, how many times. <laughs> right. So, so, so some of those things you can combine, some of them you can string. So knowing your system and mapping out through that system map, what are the different load combinations and looking about looking at how you can simplify those is mm -hmm. going to really help. I really like the way that you portrayed that visually of just stringing on the tests because there's certain tests that are really trying to understand the performance of something. It's not supposed to damage it really, but it's supposed mm -hmm. to understand what load cases, what environmental conditions. And then there's some level of destructive testing and then there's some level of life cycle testing, which mm -hmm. these are all different types of testing, as you said. And what you can do to be able to either make it quicker or make it less expensive because testing is really expensive when it comes to these complex systems and a prototype could cost millions. And like, how do you do it? It goes back to what we were saying of just systematizing it so that you can de-risk systems and then you can de-risk the entire integrated system later on, but at least you're starting off from a much better place. And then stringing these, these assessments and risk retirement opportunities so that potentially the same pro prototype could be used where it's mm -hmm. that you've tested their performance, they're doing great, and you also have data on their performance, which is a great kind of initial condition to start any other test on because you know that it's working. And then going into more, this is going to sound a little bit morbid, but just more destruction. Once you destroy a, a prototype, you can't use it again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it was. It's a very interesting game of Tetris, I think, to be able to put that together. But it's a really good method. And I think it does also make you think more of just your tests in general, because I think planning tests is also an art in its own. Yeah. I, yeah. And, and it goes back to that whole failure modes. What are your most critical failure modes? What are the absolutely have to test this? We have to do a physical test. And what other ones can we we are at an acceptable risk level for saying if we do like some CAE, if we do some computer analysis, we can build enough confidence to say we're good on this. So that it, it all ties back to that. <laughs> it, yeah, it's all interconnected. Mm -hmm. So that, that all makes a lot of sense. This podcast is presented to you by Pratik a startup advising and coaching company that is geared to help hardware entrepreneurs get their ideas from a napkin sketch into a lab and out into the world. So I feel like this is a great place to do a little podcast break and talk about some hardware horror stories. I'm super intrigued to hear <laughs> you are ready to share with us. I'm very excited. Yeah, S story from my nuclear days. We, so in addition to doing uh, services that we also develop different types of products that could help uh, make the inspection and different activities at the plants during uh, shutdowns more, uh, more efficient. One of them was this giant half floating half spider on the ground platform for boiling water reactors. <laughs> it, yeah, it was a, it's a platform that people could walk in and it would float in the pool over top of the reactor so they could do the, whatever inspection tests they need. 
the the thing about it was because you needed to leave space for the tool that does the rod exchanges, it was a giant circle, but it was like a C because you had to have a cut in it. So you can imagine the stability difference from a completed circle to a C. <laughs> and it was we called it the spider because not only was it it designed to be this tub floating in the water, it had eight legs that would sit on the ground outside of the pool. So that's the system we were working on. The very first, I want to say prototype, like we we didn't do prototypes. It was just the very first time we built it. Yeah. We, again, it years in the planning of doing the analysis, the CAE, the different types of different modals. It had to, it had to stay put during seismic events. So you can imagine just all the complex analysis that we went through to, to do this. Um. And it's going to bring me around to my larger point of CAE models are can be very powerful. But could you, could you open up what oh, CAE means? Oh yes, uh, computer engineering analysis or computer aided analysis. Yeah, garbage in, garbage out. If you don't have the right inputs and you're not careful about how you design your model, it garbage doesn't in garbage garbage out. out. <laughs> so. You know, and this is why in the nuclear industry, it was so critical that we go back and we reviewed everything. We double checked everything. And then why we spent so much time on the upfront. There was an issue with the analysis, with the design. And when they set it up for the first time, um, it was supposed to stand on its own, but it was also supposed to, um, one of the test cases was we would fill the tub with water to have it, it like simulate how it was going to um, have with people in it and everything. It didn't stand up on its own. Did it just tilt because it was a it just it it just it it wouldn't it would not hold its own weight the very first time. And so I worked on the second iteration uh, of the design. But you imagine how much time and effort went in and to figure out all of this and you on the end of it and it wouldn't stand up on its own weight. We we eventually got the design to work. And and funny enough, I was talking with somebody at GM who worked at one of the plants that utilize this platform i was like oh do you remember he's i worked at the at this plant and i was like oh i did projects for that plant <laughs> he's that's crazy i was like yeah i was like do you, do you know like the spider platform with the eight legs that sits out and sits over top of the reactors yeah i know that platform i was like yeah i designed that the second In, version this yes second. the second version the one that worked <laughs> but so so cae or computer analysis again can be very powerful and help you do a lot of that critical design and critical interfaces up front and allow you to do it very quickly without having to destroy and do all these different prototypes to to do destructive testing. But garbage in, garbage out. Garbage out. <laughs> so, oh my God, that must have first, it, do you remember how much that project cost the first? Uh, I, I, I don't, but I could guess it was like the millions of dollars in just engineering development alone. Now, you imagine how big this is because we're talking about a platform that was going to hold seven or eight people at a time. It's you know huge, just absolutely huge. My my other story about CAE models and garbage in, garbage out is I had an engineer who was building a model of scaffolding for a plant that we were working at. And he sent me the model to take a look at. And he's, yep, he's, I think I got everything right. I've, they're all free nodes and everything. I'm looking at the model. This isn't reacting how I expect. 
So here's where your engineering judgment can come in because you can take a look and you're like, this is not how it should react. And I took a closer look at it and every like little stick model in the scaffolding was completely fixed end to end. And you think of a scaffolding, that's like a perfect pinned condition. Like yeah. they're like all their pinned connection. There is no moment that's going to be carried at any of those end connections. And he had modeled it with these fixed connections that were constrained for moment and, and everything. I was like, I was like, no, I was like, this is totally right. You have to release all the moments on that. He's like, but they're free nodes. So that only means that they are, they can exist in space. That doesn't mean they are completely unconstrained. <laughs> the node might be unconstrained, but the member you've got it attached to is completely it's, constrained. It's and it's, it's so wrong. It, it was like, there's no way this model is not representative at all of what we are doing. So understanding how your CAE system works, again, it's so critical and to be successful in it. Yeah. And judging your constraints of just like if they are supposed to, in the real world, they're like mm -hmm. more free floating than they are constrained yep. and mm -hmm. that imperfection can be a make it or break it yep <laughs> that's yeah i feel like this is the garbage in garbage out <laughs> oh gosh that oh man it yeah it poses a lot of issues in the real world when you think about it that mm -hmm. I, I just cannot believe i'm just thinking about this gigantic c-shaped spider just dunk. <laughs> That's all I can think about right now. Oh, it must have been heart wrenching for those engineers who were. I know. I know. <laughs> wow. Oh, how do you feel like they could have avoided that? Do you feel like they could have made a, I don't know, just something that's smaller in form factor that they could have just tried? I feel like there would be some transferable yeah. knowledge. Yeah, yes. And that's part of when you're setting up a strategy for doing CAE analysis is building confidence in your models and confidence in your system and being able to correlate it to real world tests. Yeah, like it's let's take a very simple model. You got a beam, you've set it on, it's it's supported on two sides, you can push on it in the middle, and you can calculate by hand what the reactions should be at either ones. And so if you do the same thing in the model, you know calculate uh, and let it calculate your reactions at either end, did it give you the right thing? And, and so doing those double checks, again, starting simple before you go to the complex, because you if you have these hugely complex models, and, and e even like when I was working on small models, small CAE models of just one nozzle, they were hugely complex because you had so many different layers, so many different materials and metals involved in it, so many different low cases. But before you can get to that point, you needed to start small, do one low case and say, okay, does this map of stresses and strains and the reaction that this model getting, does it make sense? If I put a load at the top of the nozzle and I pull on it this way, do I see the correct results? And so that's where having that good engineering eye for detail and understanding how materials react under stress and strain in different low cases Having that good judgment really is key to catching those things. But yeah, so if you're going to start working in CAE, you start small and you build up to complex because if you go to complex right away, it is so much harder to figure out where you went wrong. <laughs> you couple, couple all of those. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that's true. And it's also, I think, begs the question of asking yourself, is this best? How much do we trust our inputs? Mm -hmm. And is is FEA or CAE the right way to go about it? Mm -hmm. And maybe even making that judgment early on of just these are the things we're going to build small prototypes of. These are the things that we're going to trust computer Mm -hmm. relation on and so on and so forth. And don't put all of your eggs in one basket. Right. Lessons learned. Yep. And and your DFMEA or your FMEA can help you figure out which parts of those that you need to test because you've gone through your risk analysis. You said, this is critical. This is this is our midline. We could do like some correlation testing or we can get by, or this is not a really critical one. And the CA analysis or just, I don't want to say back in the napkin analysis, but it's good, something's going to be good enough <laughs> for those lower risk items. I always think about this. This is slightly unrelated, but I think it's funny. And I guess in a way also related to this, my dad studied statistics in college and one of his classmates ended up failing the course because he found a probability of negative and submitted that as a exact. He just did his math, <laughs> math wrong. And it was, I think, like probability of negative two. And mm-hmm. they were like, you completely missed the point. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so it's just like when you get something weird from your computer simulation that you feel like can't exist in the physical world, it's likely mm-hmm. wrong. It's yeah. probably garbage out because there was garbage <laughs> in. Oh, oh that was an excellent horror. It was also it was a horror story. It was like hardware hacks, giving a little bit of hacking for people of just how to think about it. That was the best little uh, po- podcast break se- segment I've had. Love that. Thank you so much for that. Yeah. Okay. So we talked about a lot about how things should, how people should approach uh, complex systems and their system architecture and their failure modes and their risk retirement and their development. What are some common pitfalls that you've seen when creating, and this I feel like could be an episode of its own and mm-hmm. it could be like 500,000 of them. But what are some common pitfalls when creating a complex system with multiple system interfaces? Yeah, so so a couple of different pitfalls. We've touched on these a little bit, but let's go in a little bit deeper. First of all is the siloing. If you are creating systems and you have not mapped out all those interfaces or completely understood how different systems affect each other, you run the risk of siloing and having different cause and effects that you have not comprehended yet. And sometimes those can be very dangerous, depending on the type of system that you're working on. So that's siloing, not letting, making sure you have somebody always having the big picture and having people at those different levels, because not everybody's, not everybody's going to have that big picture, but you need to have somebody at the top that's making sure that everybody's talking to each other and that are asking those hard questions like, does this affect this? Or, or nothing is truly independent in in a system. You're going to have effect on something within the system, within the process. Um, so that would be, be the one pitfall. The other pitfall is change management. And again, we talked about not understanding how changes affect those those downstream. How you could say, I just want to make a small change. I want to add this small extra variation or let's just create this extra case. Depending on where you are in your system tree, 
how many systems are you going to affect? How many parts are you going to affect? And if you're further up on your system, you're going to have such proliferation downwards that it could exponentially like increase the number of parts you need, the number of systems or the number of processes, the number of stations that you might need on your manufacturing floor. Change management and making sure when you have those conversations, you have all the key stakeholders in the room talking about them together. You need people from validation, you need people from manufacturing, you need people or testing, everybody in the room saying, okay, do we understand this change and how it affects all of these end users? Yep. Yep. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And I feel like a, a pitfall that I'll add to that, which I think is related, is not thinking about what risks you need to retire early on. A lot of Mm. uh, what happens is people are very focused on designing something and trying to understand performance metrics and everything, but they don't think about, because you can, you could potentially spin up an R&D function in your team that's doing the risk retirement while you're developing so Mm -hmm. that you can parallelize efforts. And I feel like what happens sometimes is the design happens, there's some prototype that happens, and then everything is on fire because it's like, oh, we have this risk. It needs to be retired immediately. And it's no one else is set up to be able to help you with that at that point. Mm -hmm. So planning a little bit ahead. Um, Oh, yes. (laughs) Yeah. And and along with the change and the planning, there's another part to the FMEAs, the um, design review-based failure modes or DRBFMs. And so that's another portion of the FMEAs that you do that really focuses on that change and how that change is, is affecting your part and what failure modes you're affecting with that change. Ooh, and so, yeah. Yeah. And so that's like a more focused way. And so every change we go through, we do the, the DRBFM on the change and say, okay, which potential failure modes are we affecting? Are we affecting any of those rankings? Are we increasing any risk mm-hmm. uh, on those? And so that's another systematic way you can walk through those change and understand if you're affecting your risk, if you are changing any of your parameters that you originally thought that you had in hand. Did something go from a moderate risk, let's do like a a correlation model or something like that to, ooh, now we're at like a very high risk and we need to be more focused on it. That's another tool you can use as you're going through all those. That makes a lot of sense. And even maybe taking the meta step of is this change even a good idea? Yes. Because like, why are we doing this change if it's going mm-hmm. to increase our risk? It's In my mind, it's like a game of Jenga. It's you're trying to pull mm-hmm. what you have this whole tower built up. You're trying to pull one of these things. Is it going to, is it going to fall? Is the entire tower going to fall? <laughs> or are you going to yes. be able to compensate for that? And at what cost are you mm-hmm. trying to make this change? Is it, oh, like customers don't like the way it looks. So we're going to change the entire uh, outside shell of this thing or uh, something along those lines, but then everything inside doesn't fit anymore. So is that, well, is it w- worthwhile? Like, it just Yeah, and, and we go through, there's so many changes that, you know, we develop or people develop with good intentions because it's going to make it better, but the, the making it better part might not be worth the climb. It yeah. might not be worth the cost. It might be not worth the time and effort to put into the change. So yeah, so balancing that and making sure you have that business case for, what are we going to, what's the reward? What's the return on making this change? So that is absolutely critical. Looking at cost and cost from not only just the making the change, but then all, again, all those other things that affects it. If you're in the process of making 
of building tools. Say we're doing like an injection molded part and we're going to make a change. Have we, have we touched that park? Are we, is it like a, I would say a free change. Nothing's free, but is it an easy change because we haven't even gotten to building that part of the tool yet? Or is this a, we need to go and we need, we're going to have to reweld the tool and at do something else in the tool. And so what, what's that risk and how is that going to affect um, the part down the line? And as we talk about all of this, we're talking about a, a decent amount of work on engineering hours. We're talking about a decent amount of documentation and setting up infrastructure to be able to track not only requirements, but failure modes and what happens with them. We're talking about having design reviews and then having the failure modes on designs and how they, so th there's just a lot of structure and infrastructure we're talking about here. And I can hear the cry, the start of founders and product teams of just, we don't have time. We don't have money. How are we supposed to put all of this infrastructure in place and go with our product design? We really needed, need something yesterday. Mm -hmm. How are we going to do this? And I think my my answer to that is if you are building and I want to hear your answer to this I'm and I don't mean to bias I'm just curious <laughs> let me actually let me not say anything what would your response uh, be to that if you're looking at it at we don't have if you don't have time to do it right up front you're definitely not going to have time to fix it on the back end <laughs> love it <laughs> <laughs> so, there there is you need to make the time to do it right up front because you will save yourself 10 times over on the back end, not only in the ch making changes and fixing things that might have gone wrong, but just un untangling it and figuring out, you know, it, how just this, it, it can get, especially with complex systems everything's so intertwined if you have something in the middle of it that that has gone wrong or doesn't work the way you think it should have been it's going to cost you like i said 10 times that to undo all of that and then proliferate out all of this change through the rest of your systems beautifully <laughs> said i it actually takes me back to i had william burke in one of my episodes who he's a mechanical engineer. He's worked in these processes a bunch of times and he quoted, I don't remember who, but it was think slow, act fast. Mm -hmm. And I feel like a lot of engineers are so excited to just do. They want to get in the lab. They want to get a, a they want to get a wrench and they want to go for it. And mm -hmm. they want 3D print. They want to prototype all of these things. But you're so right. If you can't afford to do it now, you will definitely not afford to do it later. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> that's an excellent way to look at it. And I feel like, yes, like that these design reviews and these documentations are somewhat cumbersome. There are ways to lighten them up. There are certain things you can do. You could, as a startup, be a little bit more risk tolerant. And with certain parts of the reviews, you can keep it quick or you can use parts of it and then come back to it and so on and so forth. So there's a little bit of adjustment that can be made. It doesn't all mm -hmm. have to be space grade, but. <laughs> and and I think that comes down to the, the criticality of having the right people in the room when you're doing these reviews yeah. and making the most efficient use of your time. If you are going through these reviews and you don't have all your stakeholders, then yes, you are absolutely wasting time because you're not getting all the viewpoints that you need at that. And yeah, you're just going to have to do it again. So I completely understand the, but it's going to take so long, but 
if you do it efficiently and effectively and get those people in the room at the right time, you can do it in the one one and done and get it done the right way the first time. Yep. And on the flip side, don't involve people that don't have to be there. Don't take up their time. Yeah. I'm sure that you've sat in meetings where it's like, why am I even? <laughs> so many. Yeah, we look around each other. We're like, wow, there is a lot of money being spent to have all yeah. these engineers in a meeting. <laughs> Everyone should do a fat finger calculation mm -hmm. of how much people are worth hourly and how much a meeting costs. If it's costing more than $10,000, reevaluate. <laughs> it's eye opening, especially some of these larger meetings. And we've gone to some of the longer meetings that we have when we're going to, through product development get agenda based you can say all right we've got a we got a two hour meeting not everybody has to be on there the entire two hours maybe you only need them for this 15 minute segment and that comes down to the discipline of running your meetings effectively and keeping everybody on track and letting people come in when they're going to be most effective and then letting them go just the agenda based driven so if as you're going through your design your your dfmeas if you've scheduled and said okay for the first half an hour we're going to be looking at X number of failure modes that interface with these three parts. And then the second half an hour, we're going to be doing these number of failure modes. Yeah, you you might be there the entire time walking through everything, but then you can bring in and out your critical stakeholders for those key elements. Absolutely. I've also gotten a lot of success by having agendas be questions rather than this is what we're going to talk about. If it's a meeting where you're trying to make decisions or you're trying to get thoughts or ideas on a solution, it's just like these are the questions we're trying to answer and these are the people that we need them to yes. sign off on. Mm -hmm. Or And if it's a decision that's being made, it needs to be like, okay, these are the two people that are going to discuss and make the decision or this is one person that's going to make the decision and this is the question we're trying to answer. I yes, agree with you very <laughs> deeply. I feel like anyone that listens to this who's, who've been in the Zoom prison. Oh, gosh. OK, thank you so much for all of your thoughts. I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to hurl one more question at you because I'm very curious. I've ha never had to deal with this myself, so I'm curious. Uh, I'm sure that you have. How do you deal with a change order with a supplier for high quantity parts if they're already producing? Mm hmm. Yeah. So this is when you're going to go in and you have a couple things that you want to balance. And, and again, change management critical and track. And I'll, I'll get on my, my little soapbox for a second of tracking when the change is made. <laughs> uh, I mean, like anytime you change, as we put a GM fit former function, yeah. you need to make sure that you're tracking that change and understand when it went into your product, what product has what version of, uh. of your part of your change part. So that 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 is critical too. A couple of things you want to think is okay. You're making parts. Now you can do a couple different things. You could cut a whole new tool. So if, if we're talking about tooling or something, we're making a change in a part. You could possibly cut a whole new tool. You can take the tool down and make a change in it. If you're taking a tool down, then you have to sit there and think about okay, how long is the tool change going to take? How many parts do we need to create a bank of? to keep us going while the tool is down and managing that with your supplier. And then you've got inventory that you're going to be managing. You've got um, excess inventory. So you could either do, and it may be depending on the size of your parts or the amount of parts you need and how long it's going to take to make the, the change of the tool. And also it, it could also depend on where you are in the longevity of your tool because tools wear down over time. Are you close to the end of life for that tool where it makes more sense to just say, okay, keep running on, on this tool for the time being. And while we're running, 
cut a whole new tool. And again, so to life cycle of your product, how much longer is this product going to be in service? Does it make sense to bring a brand new tool in uh, at this time? And if you're, if it's such a critical change, if you're trying to, to use tool, use the parts off of that older tool, is there any reworking that needs to be done, done on those? And what's the cost of doing that rework if it is so critical to get pull ahead that change before you can make a make a change on the tool or something like that? So all of those things you're going to need to run down. What's the cost of and figuring out, all right, what's the tipping point? Is it time? Is it cost? Is it criticality of the change? Is this a nice to have change or is this a no, this is critical to the functionality of our product and the change needs to be in like yesterday? In which case you may be looking at doing rework of parts. It could be hand reworked or another process to to rework the parts to make them what you need while you're trying to work on a long term. So then it's, okay, short term fix, long term fix and trying to balance those. We When I was working in, in current production quality, it was, okay, we understand we have an issue with this. What are the possible things we could do to make the next part good part? And running through all those different options. And so really thinking about, okay, maybe it's a Band-Aid for the time being, but maybe we can live with a Band-Aid for the short term while we're waiting for that long-term solution. Gotcha. So to boil it down, it's like number (laughs) one assessment uh, of whether the change is fiscally and technically the best choice. And after that, because you're doing that assessment, you're actually running through almost like the tasks that need to happen both internally and externally with your supplier partner. And so Mm -hmm. once you say, okay, we've hit that tipping point, this is really well worth doing the change. You just run down the list of things that you already checked and say, okay, this needs to happen. This needs to happen. This needs to happen. And then you move forward. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. But yes, especially with high quality parts, thinking like two different styles, short-term, long-term can be so critical because you can do different things in in both those different timeframes. Oh, yes. And also, what are you going to do with the old part? And what are you going to do with that? Yeah. Yeah, scrap cost if you're scrapping parts. And that's another cost that you have to consider too. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, Very cool. Thank you so much for that. And with that, we're going to complete the episode, but I just want to make sure that you have a little bit of time at the end of episode. I like to ask my guests to either provide advice or encouragement, if you will, (laughs) uh, to people who are working in hardware. It's very difficult. There aren't that many resources. That's why this podcast exists. And right now, specifically in venture capital, there's not as much investment going into hardware. And do you have any piece of advice or encouragement for people who are working in hardware? Yeah. So it, it, especially like when you're doing startup, you're doing brand new things, you need to understand that you're going to make mistakes and that's going to be okay. It's how you mitigate those risks and what mistakes you can tolerate. And so that goes back into like our risk mitigation, but the faster you make mistakes, the faster you can learn. And so I think some of the startups, we, we talked about this, what's the risk or what's the balance of going slow versus taking time at the start. And you can go slow and put all those things in place. But sometimes we get into that paralysis of what if this, what if that? And sometimes you just got to cut loose and say, okay, let's go. Let's try this way. And fully understanding that cost of that risk and say, okay, this is the risk on, on hand. Can we accept the cost if we fail? And if we can, then just go. Right on. If some, if a test or something is being talked about longer than it would to just do it. Yes. Do it. Just do it. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you so much, Christine. This has been absolutely incredible. And I, I, 
I greatly appreciate your time and your valuable insights and the wealth of knowledge that you bring to the community. Oh, thanks, Sarah. This was so much fun. And it's exciting to talk about this stuff. So I love engineering. I'm a third generation engineer. Oh, wow. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> so I, I have grown up in this world and it's fun. I love problem solving. It's just so fun. <laughs> it absolutely is. And thank you so much for being a part of the Builder Circle. It means a lot to me. And I know that it means a lot to the founders and just hardware teams that are listening to the podcast. I've gotten numerous messages and one of them was talking about how they wanted to learn more about complex systems and like how industrial scale startups can really exist in the world. So this is going to be a really valuable episode. Awesome. Thank you so much, Sarah. Welcome to the too long didn't listen section. If you've made it this far, you have either gone through the episode and I just want to get those key takeaways or you didn't have time to listen to the entire episode and just want to get those key takeaways so that you can apply them to your strategy today and then you can always come back to listen to the rest of the episode. So today I had Kristen Barnes who is an incredibly seasoned hardware engineer. She has been working in the nuclear and automotive industry for the past years, and she gave us a lot of insight into how to best approach designing, building, and launching complex systems like trucks and nuclear power, n- nuclear power systems. I'm just going to jump right into the key takeaways. So number one is make sure to understand the system architecture, aka what your system functions are, what your system interfaces are, and how those affect each other. In the simplest of forms, having a simple flow diagram or a mind map, if you will, um, of this will really help you not only make decisions, but really understand what each system requires and what decisions affect what system. This is specifically important if you're not a small team. When you're a small team, it's not that big of a problem because you have three to five people. But when you get to that five to 10 range, it really starts to become a problem because you are it's really hard to keep track of all of those changes that individuals are making. When talking about how many products to launch or what to start with, Kristen's kind of resounding advice was one style, one product, prove you can do it, and then you can add variety. And I suggested that when you're writing your requirements or you're in the process of designing, you can put an asterisk on parameters that you think will can change to be a different product or address different markets. But just noting them down, putting an asterisk next to it saying, we want to revisit this. It's really important to design your way out of risks, specifically really high safety related or high priority risks. And DFMEAs, which is Design Failure Mode Effects Analysis, gives you a very clear list of what you should focus your attention on. So it's really important to go through that exercise, even though it might seem a little bit redundant or inefficient, making sure you have at least a few hours dedicated to doing a failure mode identification exercise with your engineering team will go a long way. And then that will help you determine your risks. And then we flipped into risks. In terms of risk assessment, Kristen said you can't go halvesies, which basically means when you are in between deciding, is it like a 50% likelihood or 75%? Can we do 65? It doesn't work that way. It's either 50 or 75. You need to have someone to make a decision. Oh, also in DFMEA, when you are conducting these meetings, it's really important to make sure that every diverse opinion has a moment to 
talk and contribute because it makes the DFMEA and risk management more rich and productive. And so it's really important to give everyone a voice, specifically those who don't like speaking in very crowded environments or marginalized groups. So it's really important to do that. And then we switched on to, because she does model-based systems engineering, we talked a little bit about computer-aided analysis. And she talked about the concept of garbage in, garbage out, making sure that if you're doing analysis, you are not trusting it with your life, making sure that you are making it as representative as possible, and then also acknowledging that it's never going to be fully representative. And then finally, we close out the episode with common pitfalls that she wanted to highlight, which is system siloing, aka developing systems without each system knowing how they're affecting one another, having poor change management processes where change either just happens or it takes a very long time, making sure that you perfect that. If you do a design change, that it has effects on your failure mode analysis. So going back uh, to that square one exercise and making sure that you change your assessment and your assessment on the risks is very important. And then also too many meetings and no agenda. Don't do this, guys, please. I, I wrote a LinkedIn post about it right after I edited this episode. Just have an agenda. Not everyone has to come to the meeting. Just there are so many uh, better ways to make a meeting more productive and also not time consuming for the participants. And last but not least, if you don't think you have time to do all of this right now, you sure as heck won't have time to fix it later. So keep that in mind as you go through your complex system product development journey in your startup. I hope that was helpful. If you have the time, I highly recommend going back and listening to the rest of the episode because it was just very rich with many, many incredible insights that Kristen touched upon. Thank you so much. The opinions and information shared on this podcast are for informational purposes only. We always recommend that you seek professional advice before taking any action related to your business or personal ventures. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed the episode.